Section 9 of The Art of Music, Volume 1 The Pre-Classic Periods Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia Chapter 4 The Music of the Ancient Greeks The importance of the music of the most ancient civilizations and its relevance to the history of music as an art may be questioned with some justification. Indeed, some historians, notably Riemann, in his scholarly Handbuch der Musikgeschichte, have practically foregone all reference to it. But an account of Greek music has unanimously been held an essential part of the scheme, for it has had an unquestioned influence upon the beginnings of our own art, and though misunderstood for centuries, its theoretic system has served as the foundation of medieval musical science. Moreover, the Greeks, in whose civilization antiquity reached its pinnacle, manifested an attitude toward the art distinctly different from that of the older nations, an aesthetic and humanistic attitude more akin to our own, which enabled them to realize something like the degree of beauty and perfection which they are conceded to have attained in the other arts. Therefore, though music is destitute of parallels to our glorious examples of the plastic arts of antiquity, a presentation of the few facts hinting at the true merits of this lost art is distinctly pertinent. It is lamentable, indeed, that next to nothing has been preserved to us of Greek music. The few fragments which assiduous antiquarians have restored and deciphered are hardly sufficient to suggest its true quality, and even further restorations could do no more than confirm the present evidence, for manuscripts are but the skeleton records. The essence has been lost with the lyres and flutes. It has died with the voices of Anacreon and Sappho. While we moderns generally deny to music any direct correspondence with the realities of life, the Greeks held it to be the most imitative or representative of arts. Not only states of feeling, but also ethical qualities and dispositions of mind were reproduced by musical imitation and on the close correspondence between the copy and the original depended the importance of music in the formation of character. Aristotle, in his Politics, says, In rhythm and melodies we have the most realistic imitation of anger and mildness, as well as of courage, temperance, and all their opposites. Here is an important element in the Greek conception of music, radically different from our own. Its imputed educational value its influence upon the character of the youth, and even its therapeutic powers are no less foreign to our modern ideas. Plato, in his Republic, sets down the study of music and its regulation as an essential part of the ideal commonwealth. Beginning from early childhood, he says, they teach and admonish their sons as long as they live. Again, the music masters in the same way pay attention to sobriety of behaviour and take care that the boys commit no evil, and when they have learned to play upon the lyre, they teach them all the compositions of other good poets, lyric poets, setting them to music, and they compel modes and harmony to become familiar to the boys' souls, in order that they may become more gentle, and being themselves more rhythmical and harmonious, they may be serviceable in word and deed, for the whole life of man requires rhythm and harmony. And elsewhere in the same work, but when handsome amusements are appointed them in their infancy, and when by means of music they embrace that amusement which is according to law, contrarywise to the others, 
this music attends them in everything else and grows with them and raiseth up in the city whatever formerly was fallen down as illustrative of the moral import of music plato says it is indeed then according as i say that we shall never become musicians neither we ourselves nor the guardians we say we are to educate before we understand the images of temperance fortitude liberality and magnificence and the other sister virtues hierocles attests pythagoras's belief in the therapeutic powers of music in the following quotation he looked on music as a great advantage to health and made use of it in the diseases of the body as well as of the soul for as plato said after him perfect music is a compound of voices and of instrumental harmony the voice alone is more perfect than instruments alone but it wants one thing to complete its perfection and that one thing is harmony and instruments alone without a voice yield only rambling and extravagant sounds which may indeed affect and move the soul but cannot instruct nor form the manners which ought to be the chief end of music before considering the probable character and form of ancient hellenic compositions we must record that music hardly existed among the greeks as an independent art the word greek musicae held a much broader meaning than our own word music it included poetry at least in its narrower sense and in a measure dancing and mimetics likewise it was closely allied through their philosophy to mathematics and astronomy but to say that music was subordinate to poetry is inaccurate for while vocal compositions both solo and choral made up the bulk of greek music instrumental music was practised not only in accompaniment but independently also and virtuosity on the kythera and aulos was developed to a considerable degree the great musicians of greece however were at the same time its great poets homer and hesiod may be thought of as musicians no less than pindar the adored creator of the first dithyramb and aeschylus the greatest of dramatists it may be interesting at this point to reproduce the table compiled by aristides quintilianus second century a d one of the most eminent greek theoreticians of the roman era to show the various branches of musical science as then understood this illustrates clearly the union of poetry and music the perfect fusion of two arts in which neither predominated but was only an inherent part of the other here is a description of the table the first branch is the theoretical part which is comprised of natural science and musical technology natural science is itself broken down into arithmetic that is musical mathematics and physics that is acoustics and physiology of hearing musical technology is itself broken down into harmonics rhythmics and metrical science that is prosody the second branch is the practical part that is applied music which is comprised of composition and musical practice composition is itself broken down into melodic invention formation of stanzas and poetry while musical practice is broken down into instrumental practice singing and mimetics the earliest references to the art in the works of homer and hesiod who themselves may be deemed the first poetic singers of record are clothed in mythical terms 
and a brief review of these references may be of interest as reflecting the racial attitude towards music. In Hesiod we read much about the immortal muses, the nine daughters of Zeus, all-father, and Mnemosyne, memory, and of these especially three are of interest to us. Calliope, the muse of epic song, Euterpe, the muse of melody and lyric poetry, and Terpsichore, the muse of choral dance. According to Homer, these entertained the gods by singing, while song itself the poet considered a direct gift of the gods. The greatest mythical figure of Greek music is Orpheus, who, like all the early civilizers of Hellas, was a Thracian, a people afterward considered barbarous by the Athenians. Orpheus was said to be the son of the king of Thrace, by the muse Calliope, but another account makes Apollo his father. He was one of the Argonauts, and indeed it was the stirring tones of his lyre, as he chanted of adventure on the sea, that stirred the good ship Argo to her launching, when all the strength of the heroes had failed in the task. On passing the island of the Sirens, the Argonauts owed their safety to Orpheus, for taking his lyre, he sang so loudly and so sweetly as to overpower the Sirens' melodies, whereby all escaped unscathed save beauties, who plunged overboard only to be snatched up by Aphrodite. Again it was the urging of Orpheus's lyre that gave the strength to the Argonautic rowers to speed between the clashing rocks, the simpler Gades, after the dove had passed through and the rocks had recoiled. The skill with which he plucked the strings moved even the trees and rocks, and the wild beasts of the forest surrounded him in delighted transports as he sang. The story of Orpheus and his wife, the nymph Eurydice, is perhaps the best known of all myths connected with music. Eurydice, it is said, was slain by the bite of a serpent as she was fleeing from the unwelcome love of Aristaeus, son of Apollo. Orpheus determined to descend to the underworld, and using the power of melody to soften the hearts of the rulers of that abode of darkness and of death, to regain possession of his beloved. Armed with his lyre, he easily obtained admittance to the realm of Hades, and in course of time made good his entrance to the palace of Pluto. At the music of his lyre, the wheel of Ixion stopped. Tantalus forgot the thirst, which was his eternal torture. For a moment the vulture ceased his perpetual gnawing at the vitals of Titius and Pluto. And Prosapina granted the prayer of the impassioned melodist with one condition only, that he should not look back upon his almost rescued wife before he had reached with her the confines of the land of darkness. Impelled by love and eagerness, Orpheus violated this condition, and Eurydice vanished evermore from his sight. Of the poetical works ascribed to Orpheus, those which remain appear to have been written chiefly by Onomacritus and Kirchops, and they illustrate some of the earliest forms of hymns with a musical accompaniment. Orpheus is also credited with the formulation of an augmentation of the scale, having added two strings to the seven-stringed lyre which Apollo had given him. The legend of Amphion also signifies the peculiar veneration in which music was held by the Greeks. The son of Zeus, or Jupiter, and Antiope, he became the king of the Thebans, and Hermes gave him a lyre of gold. By its power alone, the story runs, he built the walls of Thebes, the stones taking their places in obedience to the strains of his instrument. 
all of which serves to illustrate the high conception which the Greeks had of the art, how constantly it occupied their thoughts, and what extraordinary powers they ascribed to it. This is further attested by historical evidence showing the place which music occupied in their social system. There is little doubt that in the classic period at least, music was an essential part of the intellectual equipment of every citizen. It is assumed a public importance, and received an official recognition from the state which no other people has ever accorded to it. Not only did it form an integral part of religious worship, but it occupied an important position in the great national festivals at which the intellectual accomplishments, no less than the physical prowess of all Greece, were matched. The Olympic Games, beginning with the year 776 BC, and taking place regularly every four years in the plain of Alpheos in Elis, Olympia, are the oldest as well as the most famous of these festivals, and as the most comprehensive national celebrations they assumed the greatest importance. All Hellas and the colonies sent spectators and participants in the contests. While music no doubt played a great part in the celebration of the victors, in the sacred sacrifice to Zeus, and in the pageants and dances, an actual contest in music or poetry was never incorporated into the Olympic Games. But the Pythic Games, which took place at Delphi every nine years, and after 586 BC, in the third year of every Olympiad, were primarily poetico-musical contests in honour of Apollo. The first day was permanently dedicated to the performance of the famous Nomos Pythikos. Both the Isthmian Games and the Nemaic Games, which took place every two years, were likewise closely identified with music. But besides these great national festivals, which in all amounted to two or three annually, there were a great number of local celebrations, some of which partook of an almost national character by virtue of the great influx of foreign visitors. The Eleusinian Mysteries, primarily confined to the initiates, also took on the character of a popular festival by the institution of public contests and pageants in which, of course, music played a great part. The Athenians' annual Panathenaeus, in honour of their patron goddess, their harvest festivals and their Dionysus festivals, the Spartans' numerous celebrations and a host of others, all of which were dedicated to some phase of culture, will indicate in some measure the tremendous amount of time and attention which the Greeks gave to the cultivation of the representative arts. From Polybius, writing in the 2nd century AD, and taking as his authority Ephorus, writing 200 years earlier, we learn that the Arcadians ordered their state affairs entirely according to music, in such manner that not only boys, but young men up to the age of 30, were obliged to cultivate musical study continually. From infancy on, their children are accustomed to sing, according to rule, the hymns and paeans with which every country district praises its gods and heroes. Later they learn the melodies of Timotheus and Philoxenus, and annually perform their choral dances in the theatre to the accompaniment of Dionysian flutes, the children their children's dances, and youths the dances of men. Throughout their whole life they institute performances in this way, not engaging foreign musicians, but relying upon their own talents, and relieving each other in turn in the execution of songs. And while it is not considered a disgrace to plead ignorance in other fields of knowledge, they consider it reprehensible to decline to sing. They also practice processions to the accompaniment of flutes, 
and annually perform dances which they study together and produce in the theatres at the common expense. Not only in the public functions, but in their domestic life as well, did music assume great importance. From earliest times we have records of folk songs associated with the various occupations of ordinary life. Of these songs, which have reference to the seasons of the year and their phenomena, and which express the emotions called forth by them, are of the greatest antiquity. They were sung by country folk, by the reapers and vintners. There were two distinct classes of folk songs, the songs of sorrow and the songs of joy, both of which existed according to Homer before his time. Karl Bücher, in his Arbeit und Rhythmus, shows that in the occupational songs, where the dance did not form a part of the music, the rhythm of the occupations themselves, the handling of tools, determined the rhythm of the songs. Among such are the song of the miller while grinding, the song of the spinners, the binders of sheaves, and many others. There is no doubt that these songs, expressing in simple terms the sorrows and joys of the ordinary man, had a refreshing influence upon the more sophisticated artistic creations of Greek musicians, just as our folk songs have had upon the works of our greatest composers. The private practice of the more artistic forms was also common among the Greeks. We read in their literature how the lyre was passed round at the banquet, and each guest was expected to add to the merriment of the occasion, of the bridal songs, and many other forms of choral music executed upon special occasions. The actual character of this music we must gather from the writings about it, rather than the few fragments at hand for analysis. Just as music, because of its moral significance, became the subject of philosophic speculation, so did its scientific side appeal to the analytic mind of the Greeks, and their mathematicians and scientists in general expatiated at length upon its theory. From their writings we adduce, first of all, the fact that Greek music lacked at least one of the important elements of modern music, namely polyphony, or harmony, the quality which of all, from a modern point of view, appeals most directly to our emotions, to our susceptibility, which is most closely associated with colour and mood. Investigators, such as Westphal, Givert, etc., have untiringly striven to establish evidence of something more than simple homophony in the music of antiquity, but beyond a slight deviation in the instrumental accompaniments, partaking of the nature of grace notes, they have discovered traces of nothing but melody at the unison, or at the distance of an octave, when men and boys, or women, sang together, or when the voice was accompanied by an instrument of higher or lower pitch. Such and nothing more is the import of the testimony of Aristotle, when he says, Why is symphonous or antiphonal singing more pleasing than harmony? Is it not because it is the consonance of the octave? For antiphony is born of the voices of young boys and men, whose tones are equal in distance from each other, as is the highest note of an octave from the lowest. Curious as it may seem that it should never have occurred to a people intellectually so advanced to venture experiments in the field of polyphony, that it should never have entered their minds to strike two strings of the lyre or kithara simultaneously, or that an occasional false note struck along with the right one should not have suggested the possibilities of the third dimension in music, it remains a fact that in all the mass of theoretical and technical writings upon the art sufficient to reconstruct the entire system of Greek music, no mention is made of harmony or polyphony. 
we can only conclude then that combinations other than the perfect consonants of the octave, all mixtures of sounds or a confusion of lines, were hostile to the Greek ideal of purity, to the underlying principle of classic simplicity. Thus the Greeks, reduced to the resources of rhythm and melody as means of musical expression, developed these to a very high degree, in the fineness of its distinctions advanced even beyond the point which we have as yet found it necessary to reach in modern music. Their rhythm, while no doubt it had a distinct and independent existence, was primarily determined by the accent of the spoken word, the metres of poetry. Even if conceived as a musical entity, it must at all times be thought of as pertaining to the text rather than the melody. The earliest rhythm of which we have knowledge is the hexameter of the Homeric epics, and it is doubtful whether any variety in rhythmic structure was introduced until the introduction of the short iambic measures at a later period. Melody, on the other hand, while subjected to certain laws, and at first perhaps nothing more than a monotonous chant or declamation at slightly varying pitch, finally attained a variety of line and freedom of movement which rendered it capable of the most subtle shades of expression. This, we are informed, was due to a complex system of modes or scales, of genera and croi, which, if we understand them correctly, would credit the Greek ear with much finer distinctions of pitch than we are capable of today. A full discussion of this system is beyond our present purpose, and the numerous controversies concerning it, which in many respects are still unsettled, place the matter outside the pale of true history. But a brief statement of its development in historical sequence is necessary for the comprehension of the terms which must recur in the course of our sketch. We have seen that the Greeks recognised the consonants of the octave. Similarly, they recognised at an early period the close relationship of the interval of the perfect fifth and its inversion, the perfect fourth. The latter became the basis of the Greek system of scales. They divided the interval into unequal, smaller intervals, according to three methods, or genera, in each case placing the larger steps at the top and the smaller at the bottom. An equal division of the interval has, as far as we know, never been attempted and is entirely foreign to natural impulses. The results obtained were as follows. The three genera. The first of the three genera was a diatonic tetrachord, the second a chromatic tetrachord, and the third an enharmonic tetrachord, with a quarter-tone interval in the middle. Of these three tetrachords, from Greek tetra meaning four, and Greek chordon meaning string, only the first was generally accepted. The chromatic was rarely used, and the enharmonic probably only by virtuosi, for we have the testimony of Aristoxenus that the ear accustomed itself only with difficulty to the distinction of quarter-tones. By joining two diatonic tetrachords together, we obtain a series of notes corresponding to the Dorian scale or mode, more properly octave species, which was accounted the oldest of all the modes. Dorian mode. <laughs> 
associated with this we soon find the phrygian mode supposed to be of asiatic origin and introduced into greece by terpander of lesbos one of the earliest known composers of antiquity phrygian mode and also the Lydian, the name of which indicates its origin. Around these may be grouped all the modes in use in classic times. These scales or octave species may be compared rather to our present major and minor modes than to our modern transposition scales, in that their identity is determined not by their absolute pitch, but by the intrinsic character of each mode, based upon the distribution of the large and small steps or intervals within the octave. But here the analogy ends, for the Greek modes cannot really be thought of in the same way as either modern scales or modes, which by long association with our harmonic system have become inseparably identified with it, so that every step of the scale has a harmonic significance as well as a melodic. Hence, there is associated with our scales the idea of tonality, which in its modern sense is entirely foreign to Greek music. Nevertheless, a distinct character, or ethos, was ascribed to their scales by the Greeks, just as our major and minor have their individual character. The Lydian, for instance, was thought of as plaintive and adaptable to songs of sorrow, the Dorian as manly and strong hence to be employed in warlike strains, and so on. Footnote. The statement of Aristotle that certain low-pitched modes suited the failing voices of old men is misleading, as it assumes a fixed pitch for the modes, which, at least in classic times, they had not, and which was not their essential quality. It may be that in Aristotle's time the ethical conception of modes had been lost, and that they had all become practically transposition scales. But the theory advanced by H. S. Macron in Grove's Dictionary, which gives each mode an intrinsic pitch character according to the high or low position of its messe, or tonic, is interesting. According to the laws of Greek music, this tonic must be the predominating or constantly recurring note in every melody. End of footnote. It will be seen that the above three scales correspond to the three series of notes comprised within the octaves from E to E, D to D, and C to C, produced by the white keys of the piano. While this does not indicate their absolute pitch, it represents the relative pitch at which they appear as part of the entire system, or foundation scale, of the Greeks. By a transposition of the tetrachord divisions of each of these scales, the Greeks obtained two additional scales out of each of the above three. These derived scales were denoted by the prefixes hypo and hyper, low and high, respectively. The table in the text indicates that the Dorian variants are hypodorian from A to A and hyperdorian from B to B. The Phrygian variants are hypophrygian from G to G and hyperphrygian from A to A. The Lydian variants are Hypolydian from F to F and Hyperlydian from G to G. It is evident from this table that the Hypodorian corresponds to the Hyperphrygian and the Hypophrygian to the Hyperlydian. 
hence there are only seven different modes. A common relationship was thus clearly recognised between the three scales of each group, which may be thought of as having one common tonic. It may be noted, however, that the Hypodorian probably had an independent existence before being associated with the Dorian, as is indicated by its own ethnological name of Aeolian, and as such was supposed to be of great antiquity. The Hypodorian enjoyed an independent existence as Mixolydian. Its invention has been variously ascribed to Sappho, Damon, and Pythoclades. We have seen how, by joining two tetrachords, the Greeks constructed their Dorian scale, octachord. By joining additional tetrachords to this scale, at either end, they obtained their double octave scale, or perfect immutable system. It should be noted, however, that the new tetrachords are added conjunctively, i.e. so that one of their notes coincides with the terminal notes of the original octave, while the two tetrachords making up that octave were placed in juxtaposition with a whole tone step between them. This was called the tone of disjunction, diazuxis. For purposes of modulation, metaboli, they now laid across the middle of this system an additional diatonic tetrachord from D to A, in such a way that one of its tones, B-flat, came halfway between the two notes of the diazuxis. Footnote. The B-flat is known to have been the first chromatic string added to the kithara or lyre, thus enabling players to use several modes without tuning the instrument especially for them. End of footnote. The low A was added to round out the octave. It is a curious fact that what we call low, the Greeks called high, and vice versa. The two tetrachords, meson and hippaton, together with the conjunctive, cinnamenon, were also considered as an independent system, called the lesser perfect system. The relation of these systems, as well as the names of the individual notes, are set forth on the accompanying table. Here is a description of the table. The double octave scale or perfect immutable system. The greater perfect system is comprised of four tetrachords, from the highest to the lowest being the hyperboleon, diazugmenon, meson, and hippaton, as well as the tone proslambanomenos. The lesser perfect system is comprised of three tetrachords, from the highest to the lowest being the cinnamenon, meson, and hippaton, plus the proslambanomenos. End of table. By carving out of the greater perfect system, which we may call simply the complete system, overlapping octave sections, each beginning on a different note, the Greek theorists found these to correspond in their intervals to each of the seven different modes, as follows. Thus all scales came to be thought of theoretically as transpositions of the corresponding octave sections in the complete system, Indeed, the entire system was considered as transposed, and the individual tones retained their names regardless of pitch, i.e. in the Dorian mode, the messe would always be the fourth note from the bottom, in the Phrygian, the fifth, etc. Here is shown the complete system, or foundation scale. Oh. 
As an example, let us transpose the foundation scale one tone above its natural pitch. The diagram indicates a two-octave scale with an F-sharp and C-sharp key signature, starting from the second B below middle C up to the first B above middle C. The middle octave, that is from notes 4 to 11 of the scale, demonstrates a Phrygian scale. End of diagram. The middle octave will now be seen to be Phrygian instead of Dorian as before. Now in their system of transposition scales, in reality transposed complete systems, the Greeks gave to every scale the name corresponding to the mode of its middle octave. Before the time of Aristoxenus, only seven of these transposition scales, or keys, Greek tonoi, were in use. That theoretician eventually rounded out the scheme to 18, of which six appear in modern notation as duplicates or octave transpositions. He did this systematically by taking the interval of the perfect fifth as a basis and building on each semitone degree a group of three scales, natural, hypo, and hyper. As there were not enough of the original modes to supply names for all of the new scales, it was of course necessary to invent arbitrary names for the superfluous ones. By this achievement, it was possible to transpose melody into any one of the 18, or really 12, keys, without changing its modal character. We may therefore assume with some justification that Aristoxenus's system, in a way, did for the Greeks what our own equal temperament has done for modern music. We end our brief sketch of Greek theory at this point, which may be assumed as the highest development of the system. Later systems were either based on Aristoxenus or were of reactionary nature. We must, however, for a moment retrace our steps to explain briefly the achievements of earlier theoretician, the great philosopher Pythagoras, in the field of musical acoustics. End of section 9